I'll read verses 24 and 25. It reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So verse 24, uh, there's several... There's several different passages in the Bible where there is a statement that is made that can be difficult to understand uh, and perhaps is misunderstood by a lot of people. And verse 24 is one of them, and the main part of verse 24 is where Paul says, In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so the questions that come to mind is, what does he mean by that? Uh, was the suffering of Christ somehow lacking something. What is Paul talking about? He's, he's making up for, you know, we don't think there's a, a, a fault in uh, the sufferings of Christ, but it, it can be taken that way. So when, when Paul says in my flesh, it means what it sounds like. He's referring to his physical body. But then he says, I am filling up. So here, I am filling up, in the Greek language, the word means to fill up instead of, or to make good. Uh, it's a verb that's used in secular Greek to describe a group of soldiers that are filling a road and a second group forming another line. Sometimes when you look at the dictionaries, when, you, when you're looking at the definition of a Greek word, a lot of times they would tell you how that word is used in secular Greek. And the reason why they do that is because sometimes that will help us in being able to understand uh, maybe a nuance or what's trying to be communicated. There will be a few times, because there's a few words, uh, that Paul or maybe Peter or John will use from uh, the Greek language, because the Bible is written in Greek, the New Testament, where they actually change the definition of a word. And so then that will be explained, um, that even though in the Greek language or secular Greek language that word is used this way, Paul now is giving it a new meaning. Um, and he, what he means is this. And you'll, sometimes you can see the relationship between the word and because he's not making a word meaning something like the complete opposite of what it is, but it's taking on a whole new characteristic because of uh, basically theology and, and whatever way that it's being used. Uh, so sometimes it helps us to kind of figure out what's going on here or, or where Paul may be going when you look at the, uh, uh, the way that a word may be used in secular Greek. Again, uh, this verb, like many others, is in the present tense, so this filling up is ongoing. So Paul is saying that in my flesh or my body, I am filling up, filling out continuously what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the word filling up, a little more on that. There's a, a Greek word study called A.T. Robertson. Um, so I've told you before about Weist word studies. And in the Weist word studies, there are uh, several books of the New Testament that that guy has basically kind of written a commentary that's based on the Greek language that can be very, very helpful in studying, uh, especially some of the smaller books in the New Testament. So A.T. Robertson was another Greek scholar. Uh, his, uh, his work is primarily only dealing with words, the history of a word, and how a word is used. And so his work is called Word Pictures, A.T. Robertson's Greek Word Pictures. There's no pictures in the book, though. <laughs> uh, but again, that's another one of those really uh, of a much older work that um, I've not tried to find it, but I do believe that you probably can find or gain access to it online for free. Um, and again, you don't have to know Greek uh, to be able to use it. You can come in with the English word, find whatever word you're looking for, and then he gets into an explanation. Um, there are several different, what we call them, they're called expository dictionaries. And this is true, every time you, you translate any book to another language, there's always going to be something lacking in the communication because it's rare to ever be able to go word for word. Sometimes there'll be something in the Greek language which is one word, but we have to use a whole phrase to be able to translate that word correctly. The translators try to make sure it's only one word for one word as best they can, but they're not always able to do that. So in an expository dictionary, uh, what they do is with keywords, 
um, or important words, they try to expand on, on that word and will discuss how that word is used in theology, how that word is used in the Bible, um, why that word is used, um, and what, what the authors like Paul or Peter or whoever, what they're trying to convey. Uh, so it really c- it can help, again, to deepen our understanding. As I said to you before, whenever it comes to any of these helps, uh, and anyone using Greek or Hebrew uh, when they explain the Bible, remember that the goal is not to do that, and, and someone should not do that, to where you use the language to change the meaning of a verse. Okay, so most of the time, you will be able to understand what a verse means based on context. So it's not, because sometimes individuals will feel like, well, I don't know Greek, so I can't really understand the Bible. That's not true. Uh, the amazing thing about the Bible uh, is translated into English, you're going to get 90% of it. And what the Greek language does uh, when you're studying the New Testament, it helps to deepen your understanding. It helps you maybe to, c- to connect more dots theologically. You know, he'll say, well, they use this word because he's trying to convey this idea, let's say, concerning the atonement. And that word is used because uh, this other word, which is used for the atonement, doesn't quite convey that idea. Or whatever it happens to be, they're going to tie all those things together for you to give you a much better comprehensive understanding of why certain words are used. The Greek language is a very precise language. Uh, which is why many people believe, because God in his sovereignty and wisdom chose the Greek language um, to make sure the New Testament was, was written in uh, because there's a lot of propositional truth in it. And so that way it gets rid of any ambiguity. If you study, it gets rid of any, any ambiguity as far as understanding what is being communicated by Christ or by Paul or Peter or John and those things. When we have disagreements uh, you know, whether it's whole denominations or pastors, whatever. Often, if you do enough research, you can figure out where maybe someone is, is making a mistake because um, as you kind of look at their arguments, I'm not going to get into all that, but basically um, the idea is, is that the Word of God is given to God's people that we may know, and even though God has given us teachers and we need people to teach us, it's not that we're so dependent upon human teachers that you can't understand the Bible without them. So that's important for us to know. So that gets rid of any excuse a person may have who says, well, I don't really read the Bible on my own because I can't understand it. Okay, that's, that's not true. You may not be able to understand as much of it as you would like. That would be normal. That's true actually for all of us and why we need to study. And we all need help. You know, every single person, no matter how great a teacher is, he learned from somebody. That's just how it is. You know, someone had to teach him from the beginning. Uh, and uh, there are many brilliant individuals who have helped us a great deal with all of that. So when we get into all of that, you know, again, don't start thinking that, well, you know, um, there are certain things you just can't get because you don't know those languages. I, you know, I only took a year of Greek. I don't know Hebrew at all. But there's so many helps um, that are out there uh, that have been put together by great scholars that we can get what we need out of that. Yes, ma'am. So if your Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Hebrew mm-hmm. the New Testament primarily Greek, a little bit of Aramaics in it. Okay, so yeah. They did. In fact, um, you've heard me before mention the Septuagint. Okay, so the Septuagint is a translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. So the reason why that was done was the Greek culture was so influential, and, bec- and by that time, Israel was no longer self-ruling. Uh, the Hebrew language was falling into more and more disuse. It never became a lost language. It was, becoming, it was falling into disuse. So then these Hebrew rabbis uh, thought that what they needed to do to help their people was to translate the Hebrew and the Greek so the people could still read the Bible because there were those who were no longer fluent in, in Hebrew. Um, the, reason why we're, the reason why today we're comfortable with that is there are many times when Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, we can tell he was quoting from the Septuagint you know, because the translation would be a little different. So we believe, um, and I think it's correctly, that that was kind of like his stamp of approval on the, that, there was a very, that was an excellent translation. So, yeah, 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 yeah. 
So that's why a lot of uh, pastors who do go to seminary, uh, many times they won't take Hebrew, they only take Greek, for different reasons, but because you can study the Old Testament in Greek. Um, I've heard, unless you have a predisposition to learning languages, Hebrew I heard can be very, very difficult. Um, one guy said it makes grown men cry. Uh, but anyway, um, and, it's, and again, it's just a very, a very, it's very different than, than the Greek. Anyway, uh, so back to A.T. Robertson. So he talks about the Greek word that is used for I am filling up that Paul uses in verse 24. So he says this. He says, it is now Paul's turn at the bat to use a baseball figure. Christ had his turn, the grandest of all, and suffered for us in a sense not true of anyone else. It is the idea here of balance or correspondence, the poor balancing the rich. Christ did not cause suffering to cease. There is plenty left for Paul and for each of us in his time. So Paul used the verb fill up, meaning in essence, I take my turn in filling up. I take my turn in suffering. Each one of us takes our turn in suffering for our covenant partner, which is Christ Jesus, because the world hated him, and it will likewise hate us. So that's why we don't act surprised. Paul's picture here is like a relay race, and he is saying that I will run this lap and hand the baton off to you to run your lap. So what happens is, in, in, as he then explains this Greek word, which is, which is antina polero, I believe that's how you would say it, you can see, I think, this really helps us to understand what Paul is trying to get at. So he's not stating here that the sufferings of Christ were somehow lacking in being able to, in the sense that, you know, because we, we will, we'll say things like, Christ suffered for our sin. We'll say that Jesus was punished for our sin, for our iniquity. Uh, we will say that, uh, we use the word propitiation, meaning that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Uh, we, we also use phrases that when Jesus died for our sin, he died for all of them. Uh, everything, there's always a sense that it was complete, um, in every way. It was a one-time thing. So it would be a problem theologically if all of a sudden Paul now says, oh, well, Jesus suffered, but it wasn't quite enough. And so now there's more that has to be done. That would really, and there's people who've come to that conclusion by reading this. So as they study the Greek language and really look in the details of this, and just so you know, again, just kind of another sidelight to this, when it comes to the kind of, of works that are passed on to us, like A.T. Robertson, so the question may be this, so how do I know that what he just wrote about that word is accurate? I don't know Greek, I, so I certainly don't know etymology, the, the, I don't know how that word developed through time, how do I know? Well, one of the ways we know is that when he wrote that, A, he wasn't the only Greek scholar on the planet. There are many others, many other Greek scholars that are Christians. It's kind of gained a stamp of approval. The book is his sets of books are used in seminaries, uh, used in languages uh, where they teach the Greek, that kind of thing. So when it, when a set of books kind of passes the test of time and experience, where other believers have looked at it who are very familiar with the language as much as he is, and they say they recommend, yep, this this guy did a good job. There's you know he. There's no warning about, well, now you've got to be careful because sometimes he really says things that may sound good, but it's not accurate. That's, that's not what's going on here. So again, there's a lot of checks and balances within the Christian community uh, where a lot of individuals care a great deal about making sure we understand what the Bible says correctly and accurately. And so even though I, so I am depending upon others um, for that knowledge, but if you think about it again, that all of us, as we've learned uh, Christianity have been dependent upon other people. That's just that's how it goes. And the faith has been passed on from generation to generation. And there's a lot of ways that we can tell that um, what we hold on to, what we believe in, all this that that it's kind of passed the test, and we can we can stand on it without worrying about being led astray. Um, so because that would be if someone was to ask the question, that'd be a great question to ask. Um, remember that Christians, uh, we are supposed to be critical thinkers, meaning we're, we are analyzing what's being said because we want to carefully handle the Word of God and not just like maybe an interpretation because we like it. Uh, we want it to be accurate. And if it goes against what I believe, then i got to change what I believe, uh, kind of a thing. So what he said there, and that's the reason why I read it to you, 
I think really helps to clear up even a misunderstanding we may have about what Paul is trying to communicate. And I go, okay, now I understand what Paul is saying. Paul has been talking about his suffering. He says, uh, when we first read the verse, he said that he, was, that he was rejoicing in suffering for these believers. And the idea there was that, you know, as you look at the life of Paul, there are many times that he, you know, people were coming after him because of the work he was doing. As he was converting, helping, you know, God was using him to convert Jews to Christ, Gentiles to Christ, as he was writing these epistles and sending them out, and as he was refuting error in the synagogues, which was his, which was his habit when he first go to a city. He had a lot of enemies. Um, and so now he writes this, and because of all that he suffered, which we've been also learning on, on Sunday mornings in 2 Corinthians, I now recognize that not only is his, is his attitude consistently the same, that he, re, he rejoices. So he's not happy, but he's pleased uh, because he knows God has called him to suffer, and he sees that as a, as a, as a mark of uh, um, God's authenticating stamp. Yep, this is my servant. They hated my son, and they hate him. Same reasons. Uh, and then when he explains here, it helps me to understand what he's saying to these individuals, and that he himself, as he suffers, he's taking his turn. Of course, the implication is going to be that we'll take our turn. Uh, so, and we, again, we look around, we look at Christians around the world. Uh, we know that just from our discussions through time here at our church and different materials that we've kind of passed out and stories that we've printed and stories that we've told and videos that we've seen, that there are believers all over the world that are suffering and in some places suffering tremendously. Uh, and that is, that's part of God's plan. Um, he... It is, it, is, it is God's purpose that we suffer. It is through that that so many things take place. Um, and it is um, a, a way to uh, authenticate, in one sense, in many places, true believers because the message is so hated by the world because the world, they hate God. They don't, they don't want God to rule over them. At least they don't want the God of the Bible. Um, and so that's what Paul is getting at. So I... I I, I, I think that um, it's a, uh, it really helps to open our mind to what's, what's taking place and helps us then to have a sense of expectation so that if we end up suffering, we know that in the country we live in, there's not a lot of suffering. Some, some do, but, but there's not a lot of it, not like it is in other countries. But as it happens, or, or let's say it really begins to be ratcheted up, again, we're not surprised because in several places, you know, Jesus said, don't be surprised going to happen. Uh, Paul and John have said, and Peter have said, there's a time coming when this is going to increase, it's going to be worse. And here, Paul then talks about his own suffering briefly and says, this is what's going on. I'm, I'm actually taking my turn and you're going to have your turn soon. So it's not to, it's not to scare anybody. Um, true believers in the Lord, even though they don't want to suffer and we're not volunteering to suffer, don't have to be afraid of suffering. Uh, we really don't. And that's why one of, the, one of the things, there's been several things that have always astounded me when I've read stories or I've had the privilege of meeting certain people who have suffered physically greatly for being a Christian. Um, you never, never hear of any of them ever saying that they were afraid. They're, and they don't, they don't brag and say, I was never afraid to suffer. They never say that. But, but the idea of being afraid never comes up. They never say, well, I heard that they were doing this to the guys in the other cell block, and I was really nervous. That You don't hear that. What you do hear, though, at times, is a concern that they will suffer well, meaning that they won't deny Christ, uh, that they won't curse their torturers, um, that they will handle it in a way that pleases the Lord. It really is it's astounding to hear them say that and to read those kinds of things. Um, and so, again, remember that I said before, if we ever, if, if we ever get to a situation where, let's say things, you know, that one day the Constitution is just thrown out the window and they start rounding up Christians or they allow Christians to, uh, to be attacked physically by others, um, the grace that you need, or that you will need, <coughs> the... Uh, strength that you'll need to be able to face that, God will give you when you need it. Uh, we don't have it now, uh, but when we need it, it'll be there. God's never let anybody down.
Um, and it truly is, it truly is amazing uh, to, uh, to think about that and, and again, to read about these things. So again, the main thing about this uh, definition is that uh, when Christ suffered for us, that didn't mean that suffering in general would cease. Um, and so Paul then says he is taking his turn with this. So again, one of the purposes then of the church, which is Christ's body, is to suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's the, that's the plan of God. Um, on the grand scheme of things, we probably could begin to try to make a list as to why that's the way that God desires these things to move forward. But it's, it's clearly his will that, that that's the normal way that these things go. And so when you experience uh, at work, whether maybe it's just one coworker or maybe it's several, uh, if you experience difficulties because people, they don't like you, um, be, either because of your stand or because of what you say or because you go to church or whatever, um, that's, to, that's to be expected. So there's no reason for us to complain about it. Uh, we shouldn't complain about that. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we respond the right way. Um, and I do think that we're entering a time, because I think you can see it if you just watch the news, uh, because of how people are responding to people who have now different opinions, you know, politically. But remember now, a lot of those political opinions are dealing with moral issues. So abortion would be one of those. Abortion's a moral issue. There's no way to get around that. And one of the things that is frustrating, uh, I think, and I think many people think this, is that in the discussion of abortion, um, those who are pro-abortion have learned, because this, is, this has been done on purpose, ways to argue for abortion without really admitting to what it is. In the end, we, we know what it is. it is. You are taking the life of a human being. That's what it is. And so when they, when they say that it's a matter of health care, we all know that it's not a matter of health. That's not what that is. Um, when they say that a woman has a right to do whatever she wants with her body. Well, maybe, but that's not her body. That's a baby's body, right? There, that, there's, not a, there's not a connection there. Um, and then when they try to bring up very difficult, but very real situations, you know, what if a woman is raped? And we know that does happen. When a woman is raped, then she does get pregnant. Um, what if it's a product of incest? We know that has happened. Um, but even though that's a very unfortunate and wrong situation, how does that justify killing a child because that's what that is and so there's a lot of what i would call intellectual dishonesty with that um and people they don't like that and they get very very angry uh especially if they have to try to defend their position and so uh there are you know we've seen more violence i know that several i don't know when i say several i don't know i don't know if it's 10 or more i don't know but i know that recently you know um pregnancy centers, pregnancy crisis centers uh, that are set up to try to help women uh, decide something other than to get an abortion, those types of things. Several have been burned, uh, destroyed, vandalized, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, and there's not been a whole lot of effort put into prosecute or even find out who's responsible and, and to handle that. Yeah, so um, there have been attacks on individuals who, like, you know, sometimes there'll be a demonstration um, where there's individuals who are demonstrating and they're pro-abortion, and then what happens is there's a bunch of pro-life demonstrators that, that um, show up. I'm not making a comment if that's a good or a bad thing, but when it does happen, that still doesn't give other people a right to attack and beat on an individual because they have a difference of opinion. Um, and so that's being more and more tolerated. Uh, kind of a thing. And then, of course, there's the accusations were being called names, the whole transgender thing that's taking place. Uh, people are being fired. Um, I know that uh, th it, there's a, uh, who was it? Um, uh, I can't remember his name. It doesn't matter. Uh, but there's situations where maybe a, a college professor will call an individual by whatever name they want to be called, but they will not call them by their preferred pronoun because now, you, now you're ending a problem. So if, if all of a sudden Ron tells me he wants to be called Sue, I'll call him Sue. 
but I can't refer to him as a her because he's not a her. All right, that's a denial of whatever. So there's been believers who have been fired from the jobs for that reason, it, and it's, it's many, and it's not just in academic circles. So there's more and more of that kind of thing being um, allowed uh, in our country and other westernized countries. Um, and so I believe that that, uh, that kind of thing will continue. Uh, and it, it may increase in violence. Um, I, I would not be surprised if it does. But again, part of the call of God on the church um, is to suffer for righteousness. So, and this kind of thing that we're going through now, it's not new. It's been going on in countries for centuries. Just go back to Rome. Uh, Christians were being mocked and it was open season at times on them. And they were doing the same things they're doing now. They were speaking out against abortion. Uh, they were going into the city dump to find, to rescue babies that were thrown there um, and taking them home to, to uh, raise them as their own because they, they believe in the sanctity of life. And there were times they were, they were beat and killed for that. Um, they refused to bow to Caesar and, and worship him as a god. Even though they were very obedient and they obeyed all the laws, they wouldn't do that. And so they would be, you know, there are times they were thrown to the lions. Um, and so that kind of thing has taken place before. Rome's not the only place. Uh, but it's happened throughout the history of the world. And so we're not in a unique situation. Uh, we've just been in a unique situation that we've had, a, in a sense, a political power base for so long. Uh, and it's, it's nice to have that. Um, and I, I believe we're going to lose it. Um, gradually, maybe it's picking up speed. Uh, but again, that's as we read the scripture, what the Bible informs us is this is the norm uh, when it comes to this kind of thing. So again, one of the purposes of the body of Christ, the church, is to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Again, Christ suffered for believers, and he promised in this world that his disciples would have tribulation. Uh, so now, as each believer imitates his master, which is Christ, he then takes his turn, uh, suffering on behalf of the body. So if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 14. <clears throat> so in verse 14 of 1 Peter 3, it says, But even if, all right, so I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, because the, the word, even if, is important. Uh, so I'm going to read this to you. This comes out, of, again, one of those Greek dictionaries. Uh, but it's important for us to really get a good grasp on that term, even if. So it says the even if, this introduces a so-called condition of fourth class with I, which is it's a Greek word, E-I, and the optative mood, which expresses a wish or sometimes a prayer. So the optative expresses a fourth-class condition, implying that there is no certainty that suffering will happen, but it might. <coughs> In other words, Peter is saying that suffering is not generally expected, the expected outcome of zeal for good, but it might occur. So as we get into the to reading the verses, you'll see what he's talking about there. But the idea is that there will be an ex, that there that we may suffer for doing good, and uh, so. It's not generally expected, but it can still happen, so we shouldn't be surprised. That's what he means by even if. So he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet... Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So again, as you kind of work your way through that, um, so even if we, if we do suffer for righteousness, if that does happen, he says you'll be blessed. So because of that, don't be afraid of them. We should have no fear, and we really, we really shouldn't be troubled. Then he says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. So the idea is, is that 
that is what drives us. That's what we're focused on, is that because Christ is the Lord, Christ is God, he is the master uh, of us, and he is holy, or he is sacred, that's, the, that's where our allegiance belongs, is to him. And so because of that, we should always then be prepared to make a defense. Make a defense of what, he says, to anyone who asks you for a reason. So in whatever way, shape, or form, someone asks you either, why are you a Christian? Or why are you doing this? Or why do you believe such and such? We need to be prepared to give a defense. It doesn't mean that you're going to win a court case, but you need to be able to give the reason why you believe in Christ, the reason why you believe what the Bible says, that kind of thing, and, and the hope that we have in Christ. But he tells us then, so even though we're being troubled by these individuals, he makes sure that even when it comes to the message that we, that we deliver in a particular way, so we do it with gentleness. So we're not allowed to be mean. We're not allowed to be angry about it. We're not allowed to be like aggressively, you know, like in your face kind of a thing. We do it gently uh, and we do it with respect. So the idea of respect is even though they're not respecting us, that's not the issue. The issue is, is that we understand that every human being is, is someone who's made in the image of God. That image is marred and that individual is acting in accordance with their sin nature. We treat them with respect because we respect God. I treat them with loving kindness because I love God. That's, that's the attitude that we are to have. That can be hard. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to do it from a distance. It's hard to do it in person, especially if they're really loud and they're spitting on you. Like, not like they might be spitting on you, but I mean, hey, you know, someone gets close to you and they start spraying and they get angry. You know, it can be irritating. But how, how are we supposed to be? Well, he says to be gentle, to be respectful. Uh, we need to make sure our conscience is clear, that we have a good conscience. So then the idea, and the reason why we do that is there's an expectation that if all this is going to go on, we're going to be slandered. People are going to talk bad about us. So you can't stop it. Let them. The idea is, is they're just going to revile your good behavior. They may not recognize it as good behavior. They may not admit that it's good behavior. It does, it's not dependent on them. Because the bottom line is, is we have a high regard in our heart for Christ. And that's why we do it this way. Um, and the idea is that they will be put to shame. It doesn't mean that they will be put to shame at that moment. It could happen. But there will be a day when they'll be put to shame when they stand before the Lord. Uh, and everything becomes crystal clear to them. And then he ends by saying that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So the idea is that if you do wrong and you suffer, that's just not a thing. You deserve that. Uh, but he is saying that if you do suffer for doing good, and if that happens because it's God's will, it's a good thing. Now that phrasing is actually very important because um, when the Christians were being fed the lions, just so you know, that, that didn't happen the, whole, the entire time the early church ex ex existed. There were certain times in the early church where that took place, under certain Caesars that would happen. Uh, and it normally only happened in Rome itself. In the outlying areas, they didn't, they didn't go rounding up Christians. Uh, it was usually done within the city. Um, and there were these periods of time when, when Christians were being arrested and basically saying, look, make a sacrifice to this God and you'll go free or denounce the Lord or whatever it happened to be. There'd be different phrases that would be used. And if they refused to do that, then they would send them to the arena where they would be either eaten by lions or other wild beasts or maybe even used as target practice by the slaves that were gladiators, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and the problem that the early church had, believe it or not, was because they had a lot of great respect for those who were martyred and held them in high regard, there were people who were trying to get themselves arrested for being Christians. I mean, they would, they, would, they, would, they would go to the places of government and basically start yelling, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in Caesar. I'm not going to, you know, like, like, why are you doing that? <laughs> you don't need to do that. That's, that if, if it's God's will to be arrested, you'll be arrested. You don't have to go and be, be obnoxious and make it happen. And there are these individuals who are trying, believe it or not, to be martyred. Because they, in their mind, they saw these other martyrs as, being, as receiving glory. And they wanted that glory. Now, in some of the writings that I've read of some of those in the early church, they said, um, and this is from a couple of the sermons that were preached, 
uh, where the pastors were warning their people to not try and get arrested. They said, don't be afraid of it, but don't try and make this happen. Um, and they talked about that most of the time, it seemed that, though, that if it was God's will for a person to be martyred, God gave them great grace to not only face whatever they were facing in, in death, but that the pain that they had to endure seemed to be easy. Either God gave them the grace to endure it and they didn't really suffer, though it was a horrible death, but that those who had tried to make it happen seemed to suffer horribly. <laughs> and so that was kind of the warning. I don't know how much of that was, I know that the pastors believed that was going on. Uh, and I've read other stories where even in England, hundreds of years later, when um, the Catholics were killing, were burning Christians at the stake, um, that, that um, uh, a lot of the stories that came out of there was that when these Christians were being burned, uh, there was no screaming and yelling like they were suffering. That it was just like they kind of went to sleep and, you know, it made some of the leaders that were burning them very angry because what they wanted to hear was blood-curdling screams as a warning to the people. And in some cases, as we've read, the, like one, like several pastors, uh, they would kind of parade them through the town on the way to where they were going to be burned because they wanted people to come see. They wanted to make a big spectacle of it. And so on some of these occasions, it really backfired because the pastor, they would start singing a hymn. And so the people who are in the town who were members of the church, they started singing too. So they're all singing these church songs <laughs> as they go to where they're going to be burned. And then they light the fire. And then the guy would basically, the pastor would make an announcement that though he be burned by the flames, et cetera, et cetera, he would not renounce Christ because the Bible is true and he was going to be home with the Lord soon. And he'd start singing. And the people are singing a hymn to God. And pretty soon he was no longer singing with them and he would die. And there would be some sadness and then people would go home. And the leader's just like, this is not working. This is not the way this is supposed to go. Uh, so there's some interesting stories uh, with some of that. But again, the idea is, is that here the, the Bible does talk a great deal, really, uh, uh, about s Christian suffering. And so we, just, we need to be uh, aware of that um, in many different ways. And again, remember that when the Bible does speak of suffering, it's not always necessarily persecution. That is in there. And this, like what he's talking about here in Peter, this will be persecution. You're suffering uh, for righteousness' sake. And the Bible does talk about that. But the Bible also talks about just suffering in general. And there is suffering. You know, we, we all live in this world, uh, and we know that our bodies are, you know, our bodies deteriorate with age. Uh, sometimes there's individuals who are young who get, you know, there's different diseases that people get. Um, you know, there are some individuals, uh, like there's some married couples, they, like they cannot have kids. Uh, and there's suffering that goes with that. Um, sometimes we suffer because maybe our children die young. There's all kinds of tragedies that take place. There's a, so there's all kinds of suffering, and we, and we suffer, uh, some, again, more than others. But we are to suffer in a particular way because we have a view and an understanding of this world and the next world that is different than the non-believer. And so even though there's still going to be, which would be normal, great sadness uh, and even experience great pain because of some of these things that happen, which, again, is we're supposed to feel those things because we care for each other, we love each other, and so... You know, because I've heard some people say, not very many times, not, not very often, but sometimes someone will say, well, Christians should never be sad at a funeral. I'm like, ah, that's not true. We're not robots, right? We're not Stoics, right? So my wife and I have been married 44 years. If she dies before me, I'm going to be very, very sad. That's just all there is to it. It doesn't mean I don't believe in God. I believe in God with all my heart, mind, and soul, and I'm convinced I'll see her again in heaven. But I don't want her to go, ever. That's just how it is. You know, I don't want my kids to go. I don't want my grandkids to go. I know it's inevitable. I don't, you know, we don't like, you know, I don't know anybody who wants to bury their kids or their grandkids. That's not, that's like, even that's out of the norm. You know, you bury your parents kind of a thing. All right. But, so we are going to experience even great grief. There's no, there's no sin in that. Um, and so we have to be careful that we, that we don't uh, communicate the wrong thing. But it is true that we don't despair like those who have no hope. There's a difference. So, but, but again, be careful. Just again, if you're ever trying to help somebody through things, and if they're grieving very, very heavily, 
that doesn't mean that, that's, that they're despairing. doesn't mean that. You need, you need to spend time with them to find out if that's where they're going. Uh, because we do grieve differently as well. And some may grieve very deeply because, again, we are different. So we need to be understanding and kind and caring before we kind of glibly say, you know, well, don't you believe in Jesus and you shouldn't be crying? And that's just, just don't do that. Um, but along with that, though, again, there still is a difference. And again, we understand that as Christians, we're not spared. I know I've shared this with a few people just in conversation, but I remember, you know, I did, it, when I was in fifth grade, um, I don't know where the belief came from, but I had a belief that there were certain bad things that would never happen to Christians because they were Christians. So I remember I went to a prayer meeting uh, uh, with my dad. Um, for whatever reason, there was no youth that night. So I'm with my dad in the auditorium where they had the prayer meeting. And so uh, this lady uh, shared a prayer request about a young lady she knew who uh, was a very strong Christian and she'd been raped. And I didn't know all the details about what rape was. I, I kind of knew uh, as a fifth grader. I was stunned because my, my first thought was, But she's a, she's a Christian. That doesn't happen to Christians. Why would God let a Christian? I mean, I was. I mean, I didn't say this to my dad. I'm a fifth grader, and I'm a boy, so we don't really talk, uh, except all about all the wrong things. So, but I was stunned, and I remember for it was like it didn't bother. It bothered me, and it wasn't like I was troubled for years and years all the time. But I was troubled for years because I didn't know the answer. But it really it just blew me out of the water. Because I was convinced, for whatever reason, that certain things like that did not happen to Christians. And so it was really quite stunning. Um, and there may be, you know, there are some people who kind of think that. You know, it's not like you've heard it from anybody, but we can think that way. Um, and we're not, we're, we're, we're not, we're not told that. Uh, and there are some Christians who suffered, as we know, unbelievably uh, at the hands of non-believers for different reasons. So we want, we want to make sure that we are, again, recognizing what the Bible says and that we're approaching life really sober-minded. And, and again, when we do that, that doesn't mean that we now become depressed people just saying, well, all that, we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. We may get arrested and so Okay, we don't, that's not our approach. We know we have great joy in the Lord and we look forward to every day. And again, if you look at or talk to people in other countries where that can happen, at any moment, get arrested and, and be beaten for being a Christian, they don't live that way. They're very joyful. Uh, they don't want their children to get arrested. They don't, they don't want to be taken from their children. They don't want those things to happen, but they're not living in absolute fear. Um, there are moments they're afraid, absolutely. Again, that's normal. Uh, but there's not that doom and gloom kind of thing. And so we don't need to be doom and gloom. Even if the elections yesterday didn't go the way you wanted, there's no, you don't have, it has, doesn't have to be doom and gloom. All right. We know the Lord. The Lord knows exactly what's going on. I don't know what he's doing because he hasn't told me, but it's okay. I trust him. And so I'm just not going to, as I, I, I heard this from a guy, he's a guy from Brooklyn. He said, and I won't say it like he said it because I, I can't do the accent, but he said, I'm just not going to let it rent space in my head. Uh, so it's just a good way to look at it. So let me read to you what John MacArthur said about uh, believers filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And he says this, The enemies of Christ were never satisfied with what they did to Jesus. They hated Jesus with an insatiable hate. They wanted to add to his suffering. So as soon as Jesus ascended back into heaven and wasn't around anymore, who did the world attack? The church. They began to persecute the church, whipping them, burning them at the stake, throwing them to the lions. Why? Was it because they hated them individually? No. It was because the church stood in the place of Christ. And since Christ wasn't around to hate, they hated the people who stood in his place. And so again, there's, there is a hatred that's very real towards Christ. Um, and so again, we should not be uh, surprised by that. So again, just to reiterate, Paul is not saying that the redemptive suffering of Christ, which is his death on the cross, is in any way lacking uh, at all. So that's what we'll make sure we keep in mind because the verse, a quick reading in English can make it look that way. So Christ suffering for our sin, he suffered completely and fully and he fully satisfied the wrath of God 
In fact, the word propitiation really means, when you get into a, a detailed study of it, to fully satisfy the wrath of God means that God poured out all of his wrath on Christ for your sin to where there is no longer any wrath left in God for your sin. All right? So what that means then is that God will never be angry at you for your sin because there's no anger left. It's very hard to fathom. It's a, I think it's fantastic. I'm really happy because, you know, since I became a believer, I've sinned more than three times. I've sinned a lot. And sometimes there's individuals, because they don't quite grasp what the scriptures say, sometimes think that because of certain things, God's now mad at them. God's not mad at you. Now, does God discipline us? Absolutely. But God does not discipline you and me in anger. He disciplines us as what? To correct us because he loves us. The same way that a parent corrects their child. Okay, There's a lot of ways to correct your children, to discipline them. But we don't do that, hopefully, only because we're angry. Sometimes they can do things that make us angry. And I know that, <clears throat> I know it's, <coughs> excuse me, probably best not to discipline them when you're angry, uh, even though sometimes you're below that. But normally what it is, is that Whatever, we're, whatever we are going to do to them to help them, uh, we're not driven by anger. We are driven by what's going to curb this behavior, what's going to help them to stop doing this, what's going to help them to, to get better. And so there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, and so that's what drives us to do that. So, and then when we do correct our children, we're not walking around, you know, three weeks later and then suddenly start yelling at your son saying, you know what? I'm still mad about what you said to your mother last week. <laughs> Our children would be living in fear if that happened. All right? But we don't do that. Um, and so, of course, God is perfect. And so when you read what Christ has done for us, that really is quite an uh, incredible position to be in. Uh, the Bible says that for the non-believer, they are heaping up daily the wrath of God. The idea, the picture is that they're walking around and the wrath of God is on them and, God, and their behavior is adding to it. it there's more and more wrath uh, that's abiding on them and when they die, it's coming down uh, on that individual. For us, not because we're good, as we know, not because we've earned anything from God, but because of what Christ has done, that's, we don't walk around with the wrath of God in a sense following us. It doesn't happen. It's really quite incredible. Um, and uh, again, as I said before, sometimes individuals, that makes them a little nervous when we talk about that because they're thinking, well, if that's true, what's to stop a person from going out and sinning? Well, again, because of the relationship that we have with the Lord, that's not like we're not thinking, oh, good, man, I can't wait to get home. I get to sin big time. We, we don't do that. All right? Just like uh, when a, a man and woman get married, the guy doesn't say, she's committed to me for better or for worse. Man, that is a good deal. I get to go do whatever I want. He, no, hopefully, no husband thinks that because he loves his wife, right? So he's driven by love to, uh, no one says, well, now that you're hooked up, you're free to do whatever. No one, we're not, we don't go in that direction. Some people do. That's because of sin. Uh, but that's not the way that it is with us and God. So I want to keep that in mind. So if you ever come across that verse, it can be, as I said, it can be kind of confusing at first when you read it. Um, there, if I can make a list of verses that people call me or email me to ask, what does this mean? That's on the list. Um, because they'll look at it like, whoa, what is this saying? Kind of a thing. Uh, ah, we got the one verse. Um, so we'll go ahead we'll just stop. Because um, I, I won't be able to, to start in on 25 without us getting back together next week and, re and reviewing all of it. So we will move on. But does anyone have any questions on that, on that passage or on the subject matter that Paul is talking about there? I'm hoping that it's really clear um, and there's no confusion. But any questions or comments? The comment about the Christians that were actually trying to draw attention to themselves mm -hmm. Yes, that in fact, indicate that they may not be Christians. 
may not be, or at least, you know, we're all prone to sin. Uh, but in some of those sermons, those pastors did point that out, that they were, that they were seeking glory, and that was obviously uh, sinful to do that. Yeah. Yes, sir? God is still angry about sin, but it's not our sin. He's angry with the wicked every day, Correct. like you yeah. said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you and I never have to worry about God being angry with us, which is phenomenal because we know that we rebel against him. And yet, it's just unreal. And it's incredible. And it makes us want to stay away from sin more. Yes. Just like, it, like mo, mo, even if you've never talked to your kids about this, often, and your children, you know, and our children don't always think in these terms, but if they were kind of having a conversation, you could lead them without telling them what to think, and this would, this would come out. But oftentimes, our children don't disobey us because they don't want to, dis- they don't want to disappoint us, because they love us. You know, you ever, you ever watch, if you ever, uh, you can usually see it much more clearly in little kids. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever done this. We take a kid when they're three or four, and you say to them, you really disappointed daddy. Man, they can't handle that. That's the last thing they want, is that. Um, it just it blows them away. So that's kind of the idea. Um, so that, yes, you're right, we're driven by love. So even with my dad, and you know, my dad's 85, I'm 64, and, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not like obeying my daddy, but at the same time, I don't want to disappoint my dad. You know, I love my dad, I respect my dad, I know my dad's not perfect, that's not even the issue. Um, so I am, I am, so there's many factors that drive us to do right, and that's a good thing, and that's one of them. Yes? Even though my dad passed away in 66, uh-huh. I still think about things that he told me and, and, oh, sure. and didn't want to do them. Absolutely. I know that he, mm-hmm. he probably is aware of it. Yeah, well, I don't know if he is or not, but. He's in heaven. I know that. But that doesn't mean he's aware of anything. <laughs> Down here, that is. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I did find a website, studylight.org, that has that Robertson's word pictures. Oh, okay. There you go. You have access to the whole thing? Yep. Cool. Well, there you go. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness and grace. And again, just for uh, the words of Paul and, and uh, the, the words of comfort that he gives us. We thank you, Father, for helping us to have a, a clear and a better understanding of, at least in some degree, of suffering and that we've been appointed to suffer and that the church is going to suffer and that there's no reason to be afraid of that and that, Father, we can rejoice in whatever future we have because we can trust you. And again, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation and what that means for us in our lives. We ask now, Lord, that you would dismiss us with your grace that you would continue to watch over us. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to be a blessing in the lives of others. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.